Would you join me in praying? Lord, once again, we come to your word asking that you would teach us. I pray that, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I looked up some uh, statistics from NOAA, the, the National Organization, Oceanic, Atmospheric stuff. And this year, year to date, there have been 23 major calamities that exceeded the estimated damage of a billion dollars or more. And in those, in the United States, and of those, there were 253 deaths. Now, in America, there's about 340 million people. And if you're the family member of one of those 250-some people that died in those storms, you're wondering why, right? I mean, why would that happen to our family? That just, there's so many people. How, did the, how, how could this, and those are just the big storms. You know, more locally, things happen that shock us. In my uh, <clears throat> Bible study two weeks ago, I learned about um, the, the girl, 16 years old in Palatka, um, who was struck by lightning in, in the woods, hunting with her father, and died from it. I mean, it just, it's a shocking thing. Um, her name is Bailey Holbrook. And, <clears throat> you know, people talk about being struck by lightning, and they tell me as a pastor, they're like, oh, I'm not sure I want, you don't want me to go to your church because, you know, I'll be struck by lightning. And they're expressing a, a sense of their sinfulness, their unworthiness, that if they went into the church, somehow that God would bring judgment through a lightning bolt. And, you know, and we kind of nod our heads, but... You know, in the case of this girl, she was, not only was she popular and pretty and um, kind, she was a faith leader among her peers. And um, her dad even said after this event that he was a better Christian man because of his 16-year-old daughter's witness to the Lord. So this isn't one of those like, oh, well, obviously this is judgment. We want to go to a moral assumption right away. We want, we want it to be A plus B equals C. And we don't necessarily get that information. In verse 14, Kohelet, the teacher, the seminar leader from Ecclesiastes says, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth that the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things seem to happen to bad people? And he's asking this question. And he's calling it vanity twice in verse 14. And remember, vanity doesn't mean meaningless. It's, it means like a mist, like a vapor. It's fleeting. It's uh, elusive. Uh, this life is like trying to grasp the wind. You know, it, um, it can be frustrating. It can be not fulfilling. And the, the preacher is looking around from a secular worldview under the sun and saying, here's a thing I've seen. Consider this. This is another aspect of the unfulfilling, fleeting aspect of life that these tragedies happen and they don't seem just. They don't line up. There's this problem. And this is the, the problem of suffering. In particular, the problem of suffering when it's matched with what we would consider an unjust situation. And there are lots of these uh, in the world. The drunk driver runs into the family on their way to go serve someone, and the family dies and the drunk driver lives. Or the uh, non-smoker person gets lung cancer. Or the, the healthy athlete who only eats really good food uh, and runs marathons has a heart attack at 30 or whatever. These stories happen over and over and over again, and they drive us crazy. And th what they do is they present 
the perennial faith question, is God good or is God powerful? Because I don't see how he could be both, right? Either he's good and he just can't fix those problems or stop them, or he's powerful, but he chooses not to, which would mean maybe he's not good. And it's set up as this polar argument. This is very common. And it has a problem, actually. That argument has a major problem. And this is, um, let me read to you the introduction on a chapter on this uh, from Tim Keller's book, The Reason of God. Just a dialogue. And this sets up what is so common. And maybe you've thought like this. I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, said Hillary, an undergrad English major. God allows terrible suffering in the world. So he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. This isn't a philosophical issue for me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. That's the conclusion that some people come to. And they, they fail to recognize a really significant flaw in this, this logic. This assumes, Keller goes on to debunk, it, go, it assumes that if I can't see a purpose in the suffering, there must not be one. That is a problem. That is a very limited view. And that is... Unfortunately, what people sometimes will, will do to hold God at arm's length, sometimes they do it because they fail to recognize the logic discontinuity. Sometimes they use it as a straw man because they don't want to surrender to God's lordship. So they set up this little philosophical argument, and they say it very smugly and go, see, God can't be trusted. But there are major problems with this. Often, we do catch glimpses of the redemption, Often we do see a purpose that God is using, how he's bringing good out of the evil. Quite often, in fact, not as much as we'd like, but quite often. You know, our, um, our daughter was in the marching band at Fleming, and when our kids were in high school, which I thought was just a couple years ago, it turns out it was like 2017, which is not just a couple years ago, but um, we were sitting there at a football game, and, um, and it was a special night because it was the one-year anniversary of uh, a tragedy. I mean, just uh, Big Ben Johnson, as he was called, was lifting weights, a football player, and he's died suddenly in the weight room. And a year later, it was the anniversary game, and Mr. Pittman, the principal, got up on the loudspeaker, and there were some people out on the field, and he made an announcement and just said, you know, this is a special night because we're recognizing the anniversary of Big Ben's passing, uh, but it's especially special because, and he introduced a man who was a principal about four hours away at a different school, and he was a, a coach of both football and baseball, and Ben was big into both of those sports, and um, he was in organ failure, and he needed kidneys and a liver, and he was on a, an, a transplant list, and he got the call that Ben was an organ donor, and it ended up saving his life, and then a year after the surgery, they connected. Like, the whole stadium was in awe, right? We were seeing how this tragedy had a little bit of a silver lining. It doesn't take it all away, but it was so meaningful for the friends and the family especially to learn that something good came out of this tragedy. Just even a little bit, a glimpse of some positive, some redemption. And it sort of dis it, it dismissed the, the, the temptation to hopelessness. That's what happens. And God gives us these little glimpses. Still, a lot of people let the unknown negate faith completely. They get angry at God and say, just, it, there's no purpose in this. 
God must not be trustworthy. Now, Kohelet won't go that far. The, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes won't go that far. He says, I see this situation in the world, and he says, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. Not pastoral advice. <laughs> right? This has to be in an academic thought setting, not in a moment where someone is suffering. You say, well, sorry about your loss. I, I recommend joy, and you enjoy your food today. Like, the only thing worse than that is what we often say, because we're uncomfortable watching someone else suffer, and what do we say? It'll be all right. As a side note, don't ever say that, because it won't be. There is a real loss. And it says, your suffering doesn't matter. Get over it. My discomfort with your suffering is more important than your suffering. What you should say, if you get nervous in that situation, is say, I can't imagine how hard this is for you. And don't say anything else. That's enough. I'm here with you. But to say either what Kohelet said in that moment is not helpful. And he knows this is inadequate. Because in the next verse, he goes on after saying that. And the whole chapter 8 is about wisdom. The whole chapter 8 is apply wisdom to this world that has all these problems in it. But then recognize there's a limit to wisdom. So he goes on and he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, 24-7, things are happening, business keeps going on. He says, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So the point of this is we just don't get to know everything. I mean, sometimes people say, when I die and go to be with the Lord, then I'll have all my questions answered. I'm not sure that's actually true. I mean, he's infinite. We're finite. I don't know that we do get all the answers. I think we get what we need, or we it won't matter to us anymore. But we don't become omniscient. Only one is omniscient, all-knowing. And so here is this wisdom teacher saying, recognize you, don't get all, you just don't get all the answers. So the big idea here, the big point this morning is you don't need understanding to trust God in suffering. And let me say it again. You don't need understanding to trust God in suffering. And let me go on and share why. Um, God is sovereign. And as sovereign, he's selective in what he chooses to reveal to us. It was a statement of the Reformation that this book contains all things necessary for life and salvation. If God didn't reveal it to us, we don't need it. But this book doesn't contain all things. It contains all things necessary for our life and for salvation. We can develop doctrines. We can be faithful with what God has revealed to us, but we don't get everything. I was mindful of something that God says to Miriam and Aaron, Moses' siblings. At one point, they became jealous, and they were um, complaining about a situation, and they said to one another, is Moses the only one that God speaks through? Does God not speak through us as well? They claimed a divine right to disagree with Moses. And then had the scariest call to the principal's office you'll ever get. God said, you three, Moses and your sibling, I want to see you three at the tent of meeting. And he comes in a pillar of cloud, a visible manifestation of God's glory, and he wants to talk to them. And here's what he says. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. 
Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Not even sure what that means because God doesn't have a form. He is a spirit. But God has manifested himself and let Moses see it in a special way. And so, why were you not afraid to speak to the servant Moses? And it goes on that Miriam gets judged, but only for seven days, and then she's restored. But my point is that God is saying, when I speak to even prophets, it's in riddles, it's in visions, it's in dreams, bits and pieces. It's rare that Moses would have that clear of a communication. God gives us what we need, but he doesn't give us as much as we want, usually. A lot of times we don't get to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things he's given to us are for us and for our, ch- our children to pass on. So God reveals things, but some things he doesn't reveal. Those are the secret things that he keeps. You know, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers for jealousy, and then he's taken to Egypt, is years of him wondering, why? Why this suffering? This makes no sense. And he gradually rises up until he's number two in all the land, and Pharaoh gives a dream. You all know the story. And, and the dream ends up being interpreted. God gives the interpretation to Joseph, and he's able to save many people from a famine because God gave him information and positioned him through the suffering over years. And at the end of it, he's able to forgive his brothers who sold him by saying, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. He got to see it, but Job, the story of Job, he doesn't actually get to see it at all. We are reading like the third person omniscient. We're looking in and we see uh, this dialogue between Satan and God. And God says, have you considered my faithful servant, Job? And Satan says, oh, it's only because you blessed him so much. And so God says, well, fine, you can take those blessings away. Don't harm his life. And Satan wipes him out, destroys all his property, kills his family, causes physical harm to him. So he's sitting there, his sores, he's in pain. You know, and his buddies all start speculating. They do what we do. We go to a moral assumption. You must have done something wrong to bring judgment on yourself. I mean, Jesus' disciples did it too. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born with this disability? And it's not about either. It was for the glory of God in that instance to be displayed. We want to jump to a moral assumption. And you get to the end of the story of Job after he and his buddies go back and forth wrestling with this. And I just love the way that it, I mean, 37 chapters of them wrestling with this. And then we get to chapter 38, and it says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then he asks him all these questions. God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Hmm. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. I mean, there's sarcasm in here in this this word from the Lord. Surely you know, Job. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? And this goes on for several chapters. And then at one point, it says, then Job answered and said, I'm of small account. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer. I've spoken twice. I will proceed no further. And then God goes for another chapter. And then finally, Job is brought to worship and humility. And then what happens is it says, then he judges all his friends. God judges Job's friends. And it says all his fortunes are restored. He gets a new wife. He gets a new family. He gets new. But it never answers what happened. At least in the book, we don't, Job doesn't know the why. 
Some things belong to the Lord, not us. We don't know why. Apostle Paul has a thorn in his flesh, some kind of a physical problem that is debilitating to him, and he prays three times for the Lord to take it away, and the Lord says no. And his answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. That was the lesson. The Lord had a purpose for it, but that was it. Now, in our gospel reading today, Jesus is being pummeled by the religious leaders again. They're just constantly challenging him. And when he mentions Abraham, he says, Abraham longed to see my day. And they say, you've seen Abraham. You're not even 50 years old. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. He claims divinity. And they pick up stones to stone him. Thankfully, that was the method because they're all looking around to find stones and he escapes because it wasn't his time yet. But he was saying, I am. That's, that's the name God gave to Moses, the divine name. Jesus knows things. He is worthy. And so when he teaches in John 15 on his way to Gethsemane from the upper room to the cross, he says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants. A servant doesn't know the business of the master. You know, a servant is just told, go do this, and they have to do it. They don't ask why. Jesus is saying, I've actually treated you as friends. I've shared with you the master's business. I've told you about the kingdom. I've shared with you about the love of God and what he's doing. And and I'm about to go to the cross, and I will die and rise on the third day. And then he goes and does this. Now, Jesus in his ministry, back to the dilemma of, is God all-powerful or is God all-loving? He can't be both, say the skeptics. Well, first of all, Jesus showed that God was all-powerful. You know, he calmed the winds and the waves, and they said, who is this that even nature listens to him? Great question to ask. I'll tell you who it is. It's the great I am. This is God in your midst, God in the flesh. And he raised people from the dead, and he did all these signs revealing the power of God on command. And not only that, John 3.16 says the fact that he came is because God so loved the world. That's why he sent his son. Jesus entered into humanity as an act of love. So we've got an all-powerful God who is also a loving God. Now, God is not above our suffering. Here's the answer to the skeptic. All-powerful or all-loving, those two things are totally true, and yet we have this problem of why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. The answer is somewhere in the fact that God is not above our suffering. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he told his disciples he was going to go do it. So he got there, and everyone was grieving, and he didn't say, stop crying, watch this. No, he could have. He paused, and he saw the grief, and he saw what the brokenness of the world causes to people. And the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He wept. He was overcome with empathy for our situation, even though he was about to fix that one. But he wasn't going to fix all the problems right then. And so the pain, the suffering, he felt it. But Jesus didn't just, you know, feel it as somebody who cares for us. He felt it personally. The gospel writers, they don't hold anything back when they describe him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he, he would die, the night before his death. I mean, he, physical manifestations of the anxiety, the angst, the pain. I mean, he was in shock. His body was manifesting weird. His sweat was like droplets of blood. He was having these, these things happen, and he begged his father, if this cup can pass, this cup of suffering, let it be so, but not my will, but yours be done. And then he goes to the cross, and of course, you know, there, there have been people that have died a more physically awful death, I think. I mean, Hebrews 11 talks about people being sawn in two and all this really awful stuff. It was painful physically. 
yes. And the Romans were good at figuring out how to torture people because they wanted to deter crime. So they wanted it to be painful and they wanted it to be public. But what we can never understand is the cry of dereliction. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't renounce God. He just is feeling the weight of our sin come upon him. All the sin of all of humanity for all time. And the penalty of sin is separation from God. And Jesus has been eternally with the Father and the Spirit forever and came to that moment and felt the separating effects of sin. And since you and I are not eternal and we are not divine and we're not part of the Holy Trinity, we can't even understand what that felt like. But we can see the effects. That's a God who goes into suffering. That is the worst suffering that has ever happened. And so don't say God doesn't care about our suffering. Don't say he's not loving and he's not powerful. He's so powerful on the third day he rose Jesus back up to life, as Jesus said would happen. This is our God. And, you know, it's redemption. It's, it's taking something that's evil and bringing good out of it. That symbol, we hang it in front of our churches. We wear it on our bodies. And it's, it's an instrument of torture, and it's been made into this glorious thing because of redemption, because of who God is and what he's done by entering into our, our suffering. The resurrection changes things. The Apostle Paul says, these slight momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed. I know that sounds really harsh when you're in the suffering, but if you had the perspective of way ahead, you're going to look back with a totally different appreciation for it even. Dare I say appreciation? You know, Kohelet didn't have the cross, and we know a kind of love that he didn't know about yet. The Old Testament, even Job calls God a redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives, and he looks ahead to resurrection. We know something even better. You know, we sometimes might think, I just wish they hadn't sinned. If Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve hadn't messed it up, it would be so much easier. Maybe, but you know what it wouldn't be? It wouldn't be a God who has nail marks in his hands. It wouldn't be showing the level of love of who God is. The cross revealed something new to us about God, and that changes our worship, and it changes our ability to enter into the suffering or whatever might come. You don't need understanding to trust God in suffering because of what Jesus has done and shown us. And since I've used two illustrations of teens that suffer, let me conclude with another one. Um, back in t whatever it was, she was 13 a while ago, Bethany Hamilton, the, the, uh, the surfer girl in Hawaii, is out there serving, and a shark takes her entire arm off. 60% of her blood goes out. She manages to live by God's kindness. And when she's, the surgery's done, she goes back in the water and learns to surf with one arm and competes even professionally. But you know, it's interesting, you know, books, she, she, she's written stuff, there was a documentary, there was a movie made. Um, her story became global. I mean, we love Shark Week for a reason, right? It's super gruesome, and we're like terrified that that could happen to us. It happens to this 13-year-old girl, and it doesn't deter her spirit. She remains joyful, and, and I don't know if this was actually a quote from her, it was just something Hollywood added in, but it's certainly true of her. She was a solid Christian and has found that she got a platform to give glory to God and be an example she still does like seminars for um, children that uh, lose a limb to encourage them. And the, the movie had this line where a reporter is asking her about what happened to her. And she says, I have been able to embrace more people with one arm than I ever could with two. It's such a great statement, right? It's, it's a, a hint of the redemption. Because of this suffering, good came forth. And I think God is going to bring forth good through all things. That's the Romans 8.28, is that... In all things, God works good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. 
So you don't need understanding to trust God in suffering. That's the teaching from Ecclesiastes today. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you for your goodness, your power. And I thank you above all for the cross. Jesus, we really don't know what it cost you, but it does say something about how much you love us. And so rather than trying to have all the answers, would you give us faith that then seeks understanding and not the other way around? Help us to trust you when we don't understand. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.